I was really just a kid, 21 years old. I was very young. I was just a little girl. But I'd already dropped out of college and waited tables to prove to my father that I was serious. I'd already been playing music around LA for at least five years. I'd already had and lost my dream band, which had even had a record deal for a short time. And the times in which I was cutting my teeth in this town were incredible. And there was no way I was going to miss the chance to become a working artist in this crazy, exciting new world of music that was finding itself all over the country, but especially here in L.A. Hello, friends. Welcome to the second episode of From the Longhouse. I'm Wendy Waldman, and I'm coming to you from the studio at the Longhouse in beautiful Northridge, California, high up in the north end of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. Northridge is a quiet suburban community, except for the occasional insane and thundering drag races that happen on Devonshire Street, usually at around four in the morning. Well, the whole country was coming out of the very turbulent 60s, which were violent, profound, game-changing, inspiring, and impossible for young people to imagine. So many institutions, ideas, and ways of life were forever altered in those years, and nothing was left untouched. Among those institutions that were completely rebuilt, the world of popular music had undergone a seismic shift, which had swept away decades of older styles of music and ushered in a whole new musical culture. This new music that was coming up in America was everything. It was folk rock, it was folk music, it was blues, it was blues rock, it was pop, it was hard rock, it was psychedelic music. And there were wonderful bands hybridizing music from all over the world and inventing new forms. And we got to hear it every day and every night, played for us by these DJs who had become personalities on the new FM band radio. And there were no playlists. Nobody told these guys what they had to say or what they had to play. And they played everything back to back. There were no formats. And some of these cats were really wild. We were getting the greatest education a generation could ask for in the new American music and the new American culture. And in this fertile ground, of course, there were clubs. And we hung out in all of them. Um, the Ashgrove, the Troubadour, the Ice House in Pasadena, McCabe's, the bigger places like the Santa Monica Civic. I saw Dylan there solo. He was just a kid himself. And that was pretty amazing. And the Shrine Auditorium where we saw some of the great psychedelic bands and the great English bands re-importing our own music to us completely turned on its head. And these bands and artists were on the move. They were coming from everywhere, from New York, Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, the UK, and some of the exotic parts of our own country, like the South. By the way, when you played a club in those days, you played it for six nights. You came in on Tuesday and you played through Sunday. It's hard to imagine that now. And one of the most important things that was happening every week in 
all of these clubs were what were called hootenannies. Hootenanny is just a, a 50s word for open mic night. And that's really how we all got our start. Probably the most important of all the open mic nights was the Troubadour Hoot at the Troubadour, which still exists today. And the policy was that you got down to the Troubadour on Monday afternoon, and you sat outside on the sidewalk. And they would open the doors, I think, around 6. And your place in the show was determined by your position in line. So I used to get over there around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I remember that Jackson Brown was always there ahead of me in line. He was usually actually number one. I don't know if he remembers this. I was more like number three. This went on for a long time. I figured maybe he lived closer to the Troubadour because I had to drive all the way in from the valley. Okay. My dream band, Brindle, broke up in 1970, quite discouraged by a bad experience with A&M Records. Kenny Edwards and Andrew Gold went to work with Linda Ronstadt. Carla Bonoff went off to write songs, some of which Linda recorded. And I kept making music with Chuck Plotkin as my producer. Chuck had finagled Elise on this funky recording studio at Santa Monica and Vine, just across the street from Studio Instrument Rentals, and I do mean funky. It was owned by these jazzbos who hung out in the back, and they made hand drums, and they were up to all kinds of nefarious things. They had the studio on Thursday. The rest of the time, it was for us, and we recorded like crazy. And our friends recorded like crazy. It was a marvelous time for us. This is where I met Michael Boshears, who became my engineer and partner in many of my records. Now through a very close friend and mentor, Ken Waldman, um, yes, I will talk about that in a different episode, I had met the Jim Queskin Jug Band with its gorgeous lead singer, Maria Moldor. And by the way, Ken also had introduced me to the Stone Ponies, Linda Ronstadt, Kenny Edwards, and Bobby Kimmel. Ken was one of those people, I tease him to this day, I say, you're kind of like Moses, you led us all to the river. And he even got to go across the river with us. I'm sure I would not be a musician today had Ken Waldman not believed in me and supported my dreams when I was just starting out. Maria Moldor signed a solo deal with Warner Brothers Records and she had liked a couple of my songs. She liked Vaudeville Man and Mad Mad Me, and with her great producer, Lenny Warnker, she included these songs on this first album. Now, at the time, I had no clue about what happens if someone else records your song. I thought it was cool, but I didn't understand it, but it was fine with me. And then the Maria Moldor solo debut, entitled Maria Moldor, exploded. And there I was with two songs on it. At the time, and we're talking 1972, Warner Brothers was arguably the most elite and the most advanced of all the modern pop labels. Under the brilliant leadership of Mo Austin and a staff of superb A&R, marketing, management, and PR people, a whole plan for artist relations, artist production, and field representation was developed at Warner Brothers 
which at the time was housed in this funky building in Burbank. Warner Brothers had some successful acts signed to it, big ones, such as Black Sabbath and the Grateful Dead. But it also fiercely nurtured a group of artists who were each quite unusual, not necessarily big sellers, but beloved by critics and showing all the earmarks of becoming lifelong icons. It's kind of like looking back on Camelot. Randy Newman, Bonnie Raitt, Ry Cooter, Maria Muldorf, Frank Zappa on his affiliated label, Captain Beefheart, James Taylor, Carly Simon, America, the Doobie Brothers, the Grateful Dead, Van Morrison, Alice Cooper, Ricky Lee Jones. And I will never forget the late great vice president of Warner Brothers at the time, Joe Smith, telling me at some event or another, it was Black Sabbath who kept the rest of us alive on that label. Warner Brothers was the home of legendary record producers like Lenny Warnker, Ted Templeman, Tommy LaPuma, and Russ Teitelman. So while Maria Moldor was having a huge hit with her first album, Chuck and I were still recording at Clover Recorders. Well, we had five songs mostly completed, and Chuck took these tracks to Lenny Warnker, who was also the head of the artist relations department. Lenny liked what we were doing, and he gave us some money, asked for some more tracks, and I was signed to Warner Brothers Records at the age of 22. And just what were we doing? <laughs> I had always had this dream, and I confess I still do, of music that sounded kind of like the Rolling Stones meet George Gershwin at Light in Hopkins's house with mountain music playing in the background and Miles Davis. Oh yeah, and with a ton of layered vocal arrangements employing the textures of people whose singing I love, and in some cases, just me. And it was crazy, but that's kind of what we did. However, the first track had to be my beloved bandmates in Brindle and myself. This is a song that we actually had done in Brindle, and this is us playing it in 1972. Brindle was Kenny Edwards, Carla Bonoff, Andrew Gold, and myself. Here's Train Song.
To his credit, Chuck Plotkin insisted that we approach my father, Fred Steiner, and ask him to write some arrangements on this album. My father was a great composer. He wrote the Perry Mason theme. He wrote the Bullwinkle Show. He wrote some of the most iconic underscores for Twilight Zone, Star Trek, Gunsmoke, Playhouse 90, countless animated features. He was the real deal. Equally and much scarier, Chuck pushed me to write some arrangements as well. He said, oh, it's got to be in your genetic makeup. Hmm. Need I point out that my years already of playing in folk clubs and hanging out in them had precluded my formal training. (laughs) My training was definitely street at that point. So we made this record, and it was a who's who of great, inspiring musicians at the time, all of whom became legends, and who were so generous to me in my naive but very insistent quest. Names like Russ Kunkel, Wilton Felder, Leland Sklar, David Campbell, Richard Green, Larry Bunker, Maria Moldor, Greg Prestopino, Jim Horn, Jackie Kelso, Chuck Finley, Kenny Edwards, Andrew Gold, Carla Bonoff, Carmi Simon, Steve Ferguson, Fred Steiner, and some of the greatest studio string session players in Hollywood at the time. The great and kind Jim Horn took me under his wing when he first saw my horn arrangements on paper. They must have looked like a child's scrawl, pages and pages of big notes. And he sat me down, and he took a red pencil, and he said, we're going to red pencil some of this, which means we draw circles around the parts we're not going to play. Well, I worked with Jim Horn for many, many years, and I hope to do it some more. I also benefited from the superb art department at Warner Brothers in album design by Gary Burden and the photography of the legendary Henry Diltz for my first album cover. The first album came out, produced by Chuck Plotkin, recorded and mixed by Michael Boshears, arrangements by my father, Fred Steiner, and myself. This next song was a lullaby that I wrote for the children I hoped one day to have. I'm happy to say I did have those children. And what's interesting to me now, listening to it, is what a child I was myself. There's such innocence in this song. I was very proud of it. It's hardly anything like the big pop songs of today, but you could write a lullaby in those days and put it on a record. My father's arrangement is gorgeous. He felt and he realized the tender Eastern European minor key ballad that I was hearing in my head. I guess we really did have a genetic and harmonic connection. Another interesting thing about this song was that it was recorded by Judy Collins. And then after that, it was recorded by Robert Smith of The Cure for his own kids. I don't know where he heard it. But I gotta say, how many people can say that they've had one song recorded by Judy Collins and Robert Smith? Yeah. 
Here's Vaudeville Man, kind of a cross between a Mississippi Delta blues tune and a Broadway musical. Was my father a vaudeville man? Not in that sense. He was a serious composer and a guy with an amazing sense of humor. But he always did remind me that the show must go on. The section for this one was Russ Kunkel on drums, Wilton Felder on bass, my pal Carmi Simon on mandolin, Kenny Edwards on slide guitar, the lamented and gone too early Peter Ivers on harmonica, and the brilliant, known only to his friends in the industry, but a hero to all of us who know him to this day, including George Winston and Linda Ronstadt, the great pianist-composer Steve Ferguson. I'm the living daughter of a vaudeville man. 
I love jazz from the time I first heard Miles Davis on one end of the spectrum and Gershwin on the other. Though I lacked the chordal sophistication that comes with having a true jazz background, I had my guitar and Jim Horn's red pencil and vocals. In the case of this tune, I did all the vocals myself. I was a pretty decent head arranger because I'd already sung for years with Brindle. We had what is referred to as sibling harmony. And I was able to multi-track myself or arrange for a group or whatever was called for in singing. Man, I loved that practically more than anything. Here's the title track of that first album, Love Has Got Me.
lived in Mexico City for a few years when I was very young, seven years old actually, and my sister Jillian was 11. My dad had been working down there and he loved it. There were fabulous musicians, great emerging orchestras, television was a brand new field there, and he loved the culture and the people. And we were plucked from our little haven in Sherman Oaks, California, and moved to this strange land stuck into school where we had to learn Spanish in a hurry, and my mom had to learn how to run a household in Mexico and in Spanish. For me, those days were both traumatic and magical. And then years later, by the time we moved back to L.A. in the early 60s, because Dad, by this time, had so much work for CBS television, we were so different as a family and as individuals because of the life we'd had in Mexico and all that we'd seen. My mom said I was counting in Spanish at 12, and I found that I didn't fit anywhere anymore. Coming back to L.A. was even harder than going to Mexico, as it turned out. And I think that's when the die was cast for me to become an artist, unbeknownst to me. But I do love Mexico now. My sister lives there, and I go every chance I get. On the first album, I wrote this tune on dulcimer, and we wound up recording it with the UCLA Mariachi Band. This tune was also recorded later by the great Latino group El Chicano and by many others, including Maria Moldor. I was raised in the heart of the city Raised up and put down and told what to do Well, now looking back, it just seems like a pity I think that I must have been some kind of fool Wearing what I just smelling the cool blossom scent in the air. I for the things I could show you. From the ocean, sun in the morning, and music at night. Everyone seems to pass by in slow motion. Pregunto, amigo, what more could be right? I for the things I could show you. I for the things you would see.
My first album came out in the fall of 1973, and something completely unexpected happened. You see, in those days, Rolling Stone magazine was the most important magazine of popular music and culture, actually, in all the industry. It was the ultimate arbiter, tastemaker, introducing our generation to countless incredible artists from every genre imaginable, but also supplying superb investigative journalism and insight. Well, someone at Rolling Stone heard this first album of mine, and he liked it, and he wrote about it. And the result was that Rolling Stone featured it in its huge two-page centerpiece, naming Love Has Got Me as the singer-songwriter debut of the year. This was unfathomable. It was absolutely mind-blowing and, looking back, completely life-changing. The author was Stephen Holden, who now writes for the New York Times. Stephen got me. He got everything I was trying to do, and he wrote about it with passion and excitement, and he gave me my start. It's hard for younger musicians today to understand the enormity of such a generous endorsement, but this really set the stage for my whole life. Though it's true that I never became a pop star, the acceptance of my music at a critical level and the fan base that really got it and still seem to get it have carried me all these years. I've never stopped writing or working, and because I wasn't an overnight sensation, I was always forced to continue searching, studying, and working in a whole lot of different aspects in music. Man, I feel like the luckiest woman in the world. I've had a blast, and I continue to. I owe everything I've got today to that miraculous little record and all those wonderful people who really made it happen. In the fall of 1973, at the age of 22, I took my Martin guitar and got on a plane by myself and flew to the East Coast where the Warner Brothers field representatives were waiting to groom me, to teach me, to give interviews and to play on the radio, to attend lunch meet and greets at record stores, distributors, magazines and newspaper interviews, even talk to DJs who had said that they absolutely didn't like me and weren't going to play my record. I still had to go talk to them. I will never forget the first few days on the road as a solo artist, a little girl who had never really been in snow. I flew to East Lansing, Michigan, where my first tour was supposed to start. It was totally snowed in and the show was canceled. So I made my way to Boston to debut at Passim's the next night to a completely sold out house. I had never been so cold in my life, but it was incredible. From that moment on, I made records and I toured constantly. It was the beginning of a road that continues to this very day. And I'm so thankful. Can't you ride on a plane to California? My mind won't let me be. Whoa, whoa, what will be my destiny? From the Longhouse is a wholly owned production of Wendy Waldman and Longhouse Records. Our executive producer is Mark Newbar. You can find us at wendywaldman.com, Wendy Waldman Music on Facebook, Wendy Waldman Music on Instagram, and Spotify and Apple Music. Today you heard tracks from my very first album for Warner Brothers, Love Has Got Me. 
We played Lee's Traveling Song, Train Song, Pirate Ships, Vaudeville Man, Love Has Got Me, Gringo in Mexico, and Waiting for the Rain. Some other fragments from that album, as well as music from the Longhouse Records Library. Longhouse Records is very proud to be the home of the legendary music show Folk Scene, hosted by Alan Larman. Longhouse Records features the work of Wendy Waldman and in conjunction with Wabaho Records, the three CDs of The Refugees. Longhouse is also the home of Mietek Szczesniak in America. The Longhouse Music Library is a cross-genre, cross-generational collective of composers and songwriters, including all of the aforementioned people, as well as works by DJ Shyboy, Abraham Parker, Robert Hoffman, and David Pilch, all superb musicians. I want to thank you so very much for spending some time with me today. I hope you enjoyed my geek-like ramblings and the music. I'm wishing you all good health and peace. See you on the flip side.